right. Thanks, Tara, for reading that. That was a fun one. Okay. We got another good one next week, too. Um, human beings, for the most part, have this innate desire uh, to see good triumph over evil. Do we not? Uh, in February of this last year, Russia invaded Ukraine, a war that's still going on today to the surprise of many. Uh, Ukrainians have defended their home and they've pushed back on Russia. And for the most part, again, the, the global community has, has rooted for them to prevail. This past week, as you heard Dan just pray, we've all become witnesses to the atrocities of, of evil that have been unleashed on the nation of Israel. And again, for the most part, the global community is supporting Israel's right to defend itself and, and, and absolutely calling out the bar, barbaric evil. Uh, from the terrorists. Human beings, we want to see good triumph over evil. We want to see uh, weak, the weaks triumph over the strong. It's why we typically root for the underdog. It's why seven of the top ten most grossing movies of all time are movies based on superheroes. A hero that's rising up, that takes on all the bad guys all by themselves, and we flock to those stories. The Marvel franchise alone has grossed over $30 billion in just the past 15 years with over 30 different movies and nine different TV series with more to come. Well, why is that? Well, because, again, people will pay to watch them. They're, they're tapping into this innate desire within human beings to see good triumph over evil. And, and we're drawn to these stories because... Because we recognize, I think, to some degree, the conflict in our own lives. We recognize the suffering that's found in this world, the suffering that we're facing. We see evil that's all around us. And we so often, even internally, feel our own sense of shame and guilt and hurt that comes from our own past. A guilt and shame that maybe for many in here is, is still haunting us. And it feels as though we can't move past it. And so a lot of times these stories that we watch or read, we, we, we dive into because maybe we're seeking an escape from our own hurt, our own guilt. Maybe if we're honest, we want to experience a similar victory in our own lives over that which haunts us, that which taunts us. We want a hero to, to fight for us, to defeat evil that's seeking to manipulate and seeking to control, that's seeking to domineer, that's seeking to, to harm us. Well, in the text today before us, we see, we see an unlikely hero rise up, Ehud, empowered by God to fight for an enslaved people. And we, and we see in, in this story of Ehud, God's deliverance of Israel yet again from the hands, here though detailed as a, as a vile, grotesque, and disgustingly evil oppressor. And from this, we learn and see how God fights for us, how he has delivered us from that which seeks to domineer, that which seeks to enslave us. We see from the text today, this morning before us, how we can have freedom and victory over that which enslaves us, freedom over fear, freedom from guilt, freedom from shame, freedom from worry, freedom from, from evil when it's taunting, when its control over us seems so overpowering us. We see here once again God raising up a deliverer, someone who will fight for the oppressed, fight for the enslaved, someone who will expose the oppressor for what they truly are, a pile of dung. And we see a change in Israel when this deliverer fights for them and leads them. They all of a sudden find rest. They all of a sudden walk in freedom and the victory that God has so so generously given them. 
We see happen to them what happens to us through faith in Christ. And so what we see in this, this story then is that since God, since God through Christ has defeated the vile and wretched enemy which stands before us, which only seeks to steal and kill and destroy, we must then live and walk in the freedom that Christ has purchased for us. So let's dig into the story today. It's an interesting one for sure. And as you were hearing it, it read, probably one of the first things that maybe you might notice, apart from just the, the violence and the, just the grossness of the story, is, is the detail. It's a very detailed story, isn't it? It's an incredibly detailed accounting of how Ehud delivered Israel from, from King Eglon. It's, it's different than even the story we read last week from Othniel. There was hardly any detail mentioned last week of, of Othniel's deliverance of Israel. So we want to ask here, why, is all, why all this detail? Why going into all of this? Why go into the size of this king? Why go into the, what happened when he was stabbed? Why go into the, the servant's response? What, what is going on here with the author's detail? See, brilliant authors always have a, a, of a way of bringing the reader into the story. Good stories are one where when you, you read them, you enjoy them, but you still feel like maybe you're a little bit of an outsider, just looking in from the outside. But, but great stories are the ones where you're, you're hearing them read and you feel like you're there, you're, like you're in the midst of it. And, and so the author of Judges here is bringing us, bringing its readers into the story, bringing them back into God's deliverance and how he delivered. But again, we want to ask why? Why the detail? Why believe that there's just profound theological significance in what the author of Judges here is communicating? That the way in which God used Ehud, an, an unlikely hero, an unlikely hero to deliver Israel, is, is doing so and he's revealing the power and the, the might and he's revealing the, the, the absolute sovereignty and the glory of, of God. And the author here is wanting the readers to be there, to see this, to, to, to smell it to some degree, to catch this, hold fast to this, look what God has done. And we see it as the story unfolds. In verses 12 through 14, we see this, again, this repeated cycle. If you've been with us from the beginning of Judges, this is this repetition of cycle that we see Israel falling into. It'll be continually what we see uh, throughout the book. But not only are we seeing Israel do great evil in the sight of God, but we're also going to see, as we continue our journey through Judges, is is how they're going to continually fall further and further away from the Lord. And that even the Judges are are going to slip further and further away from the goodness of God. The first few judges that we're dealing with here, um, Othniel today, we're dealing with, with Ehud, um, are, are pretty good judges. They're, they're trusting in the Lord. They know the Lord. But as the chapters are going to unfold, we're going to see Israel fall further and further away from God, and we're going to begin to see even the character of the judges that God uses to redeem Israel, to, to save Israel. We're going to see their character grow more and more wicked. God's still going to redeem, which again is showing us that our, our hope is not in any human being outside of Christ, but our hope is in God, not in us. God can still work through wretched human beings. But the people are even going to slide further and further into sin where toward the end of Judges, they're not going to become recognizable anymore, even as God's people. The book of Judges is going to end with with a very dark and disturbing look at how far they've fallen away and what takes place when, when we take our eyes off of God. This again will remind us 
Salvation is not found in humanity. It's found in a good God who never changes. It's going to awake us to, to how broken and how, how, how sinful and rebellious the human heart actually is and that apart from God's grace and apart from his deliverance, we're helpless. Judges points us to our, our need for a king, uh, someone to lead us and to deliver us. And so here we are again in the first few verses of the story, seeing again, once again, Israel's sin of forgetting their God. And, and because of their forgetfulness of God, because of their rebellion against God, God brings judgment upon them, and, and, and they find themselves once again enslaved. It's going to be this common theme. We're going to see, again, throughout Judges, sin brings enslavement every single time. We're going to bang that drum for the next 18 chapters. Don't forget that. Sin brings enslavement every single time. However, we're also going to see another common theme shine through that's brighter. God is merciful. Don't forget that one either. We heard the story read this morning. Let me, let me once again draw us back into the story here. Let me summarize it very very quickly and take note of the details. Judges 3 tells us the story of, of Ehud, a left-handed Israelite from the tribe of Benjamin. He was chosen by God to deliver Israel from the oppressive and obese Moabite king named Eglon. So to prepare for his mission, Ehud, he, he crafts and conceals a double-edged sword that he, he hides under his clothes on his right thigh. Ehud, along with a few other Israelites, use Eglon's demand of tribute as a way to get close to this wicked king. Ehud then cleverly finds a way to be alone with the king by saying to him, I have a secret message from God for you. Eglon, wanting to know what the secret message is, demands, everyone leave the room. It's now then only Ehud and Eglon in that room. Ehud once again says to King Eglon, listen, I have a message for you from God. And so he rises from his seat. As he approaches King Eglon, he takes the deadly weapon that's concealed under his clothes on his right side, a place that would have been unusual for a weapon to be hidden. And he drives it right into the belly of this obese king. Eglon's fat swallows up the blade so that even the handle is, is covered. It's a gory and nauseating sight to behold. We see in it, as, as you're there, what's taking place? Then all of a sudden it says the dung from Eglon's bowels spill out and fill the room. Ehud locks the door. He escapes easily past the idols. No one notices or cares that he has even left King Eglon's presence. As Eglon's servants return, they find the door locked, but they're overwhelmed by the stench of what's coming out of that room, and they say to themselves, he must be once again relieving himself. As time goes by, though, they grow embarrassed for their own king. The stench is so overwhelming that they probably begin to think to themselves, something's wrong with him. And so they unlock the door only to discover that their king is laying on the floor in a pile of his own waste. By this point, Ehud has made his way out of the kingdom to the Israelites. He tells them all, here's what God has done through his hands. And so they follow him into battle against the Moabites. For God has told them through Ehud that he has given them into their hands. The Israelites are renewed and they're empowered because their God is with them. Moab, the nation that had enslaved Israel for 18 years, is now under the hand of Israel where the people of God find rest for the next 80 years. That's the story. 
That's the story that we, that we heard read this morning from Judges 3. From it, the author wants us to see the sovereignty of God, the redemption that comes through his hand. So let's take note of, of three things about our God and how knowing these truths about him and from this story shape and change how we then live and respond in the face of a grotesque enemy that seeks to taunt us, that seeks to enslave us. How do we, how do we face him? So first thing to take note from this story and respond to is that our God is abundant in mercy. And so cry out to him. See once again the, the mercy of God in verse 15. That the people of God who had done evil in his sight, what do they do? They cry out in distress for help. And what does God do? He responds. He responds as a loving father who wants only the best for his children. The, the scriptures are filled with this language of God's love, of God's mercy. Psalm 34, verse 18 says, The Lord is near to the brokenhearted, and he saves the crushed in spirit. Psalm 145, verses 8 and 9 says that the Lord is gracious and merciful, that he is slow to anger, that he's abounding in steadfast love. It says that the Lord is good to all, and his mercy is over all that he has made. In Luke chapter 6, Jesus says that we're to be merciful. Why? Even as your Father is merciful. Over and over again, we see the mercy of God throughout the scriptures. This is who he is. He's abundant in mercy. Like Israel, though, we deserve judgment. We deserve condemnation. Like Israel, we're, we're guilty of, of doing great evil in the sight of, of God. If, if the greatest commandment ever to be given is to love the Lord our God with all of our heart and soul, mind and strength, then we have failed miserably. We are not lovers of God with all our might. Personalize that. You are not. I am not a lover of God with all my might, all my strength, all my heart. No, I, I chase after the idols of this world. I fall in love with the idols of this world. And because of that, we are, I am rightly deserving of God's wrath. I have no defense to give. You have no defense to give. You have no good works. You can lay before a holy God says, yes, I know I've done this, but, but what about all this stuff? No, everything condemns us. But praise God through faith in Christ because God is abundant in mercy. We have a God who loves to show it. A God who loves to give mercy. 1 Peter 1.3 says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Do you see there in that verse the mighty hand of God? Do you see in that verse the mercy that God has for us sinners? The love of a father, do you see it? The love of a father for you. As parents, um, we, we, don't like to, we don't like to hear our children cry. There's something that, that when we hear our kids cry that causes our hearts to, to ache when we hear them. Right? Now, now, when I, now the older now our, our kids are getting, at least for me, the older my kids are getting, we, we're starting to learn the difference between is this just now a cry for attention, uh, which I can just easily tune out, or it's usually met with, you're fine, you're fine, rub some dirt on it, get up, you're okay. Or is this a real cry for help? Parents can, can begin to, to, to see the difference between those two cries. A, parent, a, a cry that, 
okay, get over it, or cry that I need to respond to. A few years ago, my, my daughter Stella, uh, she was riding her bike in the back alleyway of her neighborhood. And she was still pretty young. She was still just learning how to, to start riding her bike. Now, now Stella, if you know her, um, she's, she's an emotional child, which I love. I love that. But, but it means, it, it does mean that there are a lot of tears in our home. And, and so we have to continually decipher, are these tears real or which aren't? What, like, what do I need to do in this moment? So, but that evening when she was riding her bike in the back alleyway, I saw her hit a, a, a crack in the road down, down the way and, and she fell over and I, I immediately heard her cry. And I knew immediately in that moment, as soon as the first cry came out of her mouth, this is a, a cry I've got to respond to as has her dad. So I ran down that alleyway and I picked her up as she was running toward me and saw immediately uh, her wrist is broken. It was one of those like, up, oh, get in the we are going to the ER. That is broken. In that moment, there was nothing else on my mind that I, that I cared about except for to care for my child and to comfort her and to protect her and to get her the help that she needed in that moment. Now, since that, that moment several years ago, I've, I've heard my daughter cry on many other occasions. But, but even right now, even right now, I can, I can still specifically remember the sound of that cry when she broke her wrist. Because in that moment, I heard that as a dad who loves her, I was emotionally connected to the pain that she was feeling in that moment. Now listen, I'm an imperfect father. An imperfect father in so many ways. But even I, even I can respond to my kids' cries in the right way when they cry out for help. How much more so? How much more so will God, a perfect father, respond to our cries for help? That's what we want to rest in. Cry out to God, regardless of what you're walking through. Cry out to God. He hears you. He loves you. He's abundant in mercy, and he loves when his children cry out to him because he loves to respond. He loves to give. He loves to provide. It gives him the glory as the great provider. God's mercy, it's abundant. His love is steadfast. A nation that had forgotten him time and time and time again, they cry out to God for help and he responds. What a loving, perfect father. Second thing to note as we read through the story though is that, is that our God uses the weak to shame the strong. So let's act with boldness. God uses the weak to shame the strong. So act with boldness. In uh, 1980, the uh, U.S. hockey team defeated the Soviet Union in what's been called the miracle on ice. It's arguably one of the, the greatest moments and upsets in, in sports history. If you know the story, you know that the Soviet Union, they had won the gold medal in, in five of the last six Winter Olympic Games. They, they were a team that was filled with professional hockey players, while the U.S., all they brought was a team made up solely of amateur players. The U.S. team was also in that tournament the youngest team, but they were also the youngest team to play in U.S. hockey history. Uh, no one was expecting them to win against the, uh, against the Soviet Union, not one. All, favor, all odds favored the Soviet Union. In fact, the odds of the U.S. winning, it was 1,000 to 1. It was 1,000 to 1. Here's what that means. that In 1980, if you would have placed a $100 bet on the U.S. team winning that game, you would have walked away with $100,000. That's how unlikely the U.S.'s victory was in that game. But they won. 
but they won. And it's why their story of that victory is still being told over 40 years, 40 years later. People, again, we love the stories of the underdog winning, of those who are not expected to win, the weak triumphing over the strong. This, this here in our text is really the heart of what the text is all about this morning with the story of Ehud. This is where the details of the story begin to come into play and the reason why behind the author bringing them up. Ehud is introduced in, in verse 15 and, and says that he's a left-handed man. Now, this simply could mean that his dominant hand was his, his left hand, but when you, when you dig into the, the meaning of the word when it's saying left-handed man, it, it has this sense behind it that meaning that his right hand in one, some way was bound. It was bound. And so the, the text could be implying here that, that Ehud's right hand was, was paralyzed, Maybe it was, he had some form of disability, but this idea that it was bound means that he was unable to use it. And so what the author is implying is that, that Ehud did not pose any type of significant threat. He was not someone that would necessarily look to, to be the part of the hero. No one in Israel is looking to him and saying, you're our guy to lead us to victory. And it's because the, the right hand, especially in that culture, the right hand was a, was a symbol of a power. It was a symbol of strength. Warriors typically fought with their right hand, which, meant that, which would mean that a sword would, would not be concealed on the, on the right thigh, but it was always going to be concealed on the, the left. And so, so whether or not the, the, the guards searched him, they would have been searching the, the left side, not the, not the right. And so everything about this situation is showing that the, the Moabites, they were not concerned about Ehud like, whatsoever. It's why, it's why he could even request a moment with the king to share this secret message, this secret thing with him without, without any protection around. Ehud was seen as weak. He was seen as, as unassuming. As one commentary says, Ehud is a, a surprising choice in a society which was even more cruel than our own to people who were physically handicapped. He would have been considered ineffective. No one would have looked up to him or naturally chose to follow him, yet he is God's choice. See, and yet ultimately, this story points to is, is, is that when empowered by God, we can walk in boldness. When we walk in the, in the power of the Spirit of God, all that seeks to enslave us is exposed for the rottenness that it is. Eglon was this vile, grotesque, disgusting monster who, who is demanding, you catch that, he was demanding worship and demanding tribute from his slaves. Those who he had oppressed, he now demands, you come and tell me how amazing I am. I'm demanding tribute. Eglon's power over Israel seemed insurmountable. All right, through, but through the power of God, through one man who seemed weak and unassuming, but empowered by the Spirit, he, he was able to expose this, this rotten king for the rottenness that he truly was. When, when you read this story, our minds must see Christ as the better Ehud. Nearly 700 years before the, the incarnation of Jesus, Isaiah prophesies of this coming Messiah, being, being also one that, that no one would look upon or seem fit to, to, to fill the narrative of the hero. Listen to what Isaiah says in Isaiah 53 regarding this future coming Messiah. He says, For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. 
And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we, we esteemed him not. Jesus was not one that fit the mold that people had created in their minds of what the ultimate deliverer would be. Jesus was rejected. Jesus was despised. And yet Jesus, empowered by the Holy Spirit, crushed the head of the enemy. Not through force, but through sacrifice. Jesus didn't wield a sword. He gave his own life. Jesus, through his life and his death and his resurrection, it pierced through the heart of the enemy of sin and death. It spilled all of its rottenness out on the table. It exposed it for what it truly was. And so how do we respond to what Christ has accomplished with boldness? Thinking back quickly even to the illustration of the U.S. hockey team, uh, after defeating the Soviet Union, there was still one game that they had to play to win that gold medal. Do you think the U.S. team, after their defeat of the Soviet Union, maybe went into that final game with some confidence, some boldness, thinking, man, we, we beat them, we can beat this team. And, and they went to that final game with that, that confidence and boldness, and absolutely, they, they, they beat that final team, Finland. They walked away with that gold medal. It was missionary, now thinking here to our context here, it was missionary William Carey who once famously said that we are to expect great things from God, so attempt great things for God. Now we're not talking about walking around in arrogance. Arrogance is internally focused. Arrogance is, is look, what, look what I can do. But, but this is not what we're talking about here. We're not talking about arrogance. We're, we're talking about a boldness because we're looking to what God has done. We're not in the picture other than we receive his deliverance, receive what he's done. So it's like what Paul says in Galatians 6, far be it for me to boast except in the cross of Christ. So, so we're walking in a boldness. Paul is boasting, but not in him. So we walk around with boldness. That should absolutely characterize our lives as believers. And, and so when we think of our, our, our prayer lives, how, how do we pray? Do you pray with boldness? Praying, knowing that if our prayers are shaped according to God's will as defined through his word, God's going to respond to that. Do, do we desire, as we, as we see Jesus saying, go make disciples, and as he, we see him saying, pray for, for laborers to go out to the, the nations, do we desire, as, as people of God, children of God, to see the good news of the gospel go out to the nations? Over three billion people who are unreached, who have never heard obstacles and, 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 and walls in front of us that seem insurmountable, but do we say, that's nothing? That's nothing. The good, Jesus' desires for the gospel to reach the nations. We're, we're moving toward that end. We pray toward that end. We give toward that end. We go toward that end. We send toward that end because it's not based on us. It's based upon a God who loves to, put, to shame the strong by using the weak. God, you, God loves to flex his strength and his might and his sovereignty. And he gets the glory and we get to just rejoice and revel in it. God uses the weak to shame the strong. So be bold. Trust him. This truth even here, we, it wasn't read this morning, but if you look at verse 31 even, it's reinforced with this little, little narrative of another judge named Shamgar. Look, look at what verse 31 says. It says, After him was Shamgar, the son of Anath, who killed 600 of the Philistines with an ox goad, and he also saved Israel. And then moves on to the next story. Why is that put in there? I think because the author is trying to reinforce the, 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 the truth of what he's trying to say through Ehud. It's about God. 
So if if God can use Ehud, a left-handed man who seemed unopposing to defeat this nasty monster. And then here's another story here of Shamgar. Oh, yeah, he killed 600 Philistines with a a cattle prod. He's, He's drawing us back to it's not you. Trust in him. He uses the weak to shame the strong. So be bold in what he does and what he can do and what he is doing. Lastly, lastly, our God has defeated the enemy so don't listen to us taunting anymore. Notice Israel's boldness at the end of the text today. Once Eglon was defeated and they knew God was, was with them, they, they ran onto that battlefield, didn't they? They weren't under his thumb any longer. The enemy had been defeated, had been destroyed. In fact, the wretchedness of, of Eglon's might was exposed as nothing but a pile of dung. Scripture says he was put down through the, through the use of this two-edged sword. It almost seemed too easy In fact, I love how the author says that Ehud just escaped right past the idols. I love that he puts that in there. Here were these idols that were supposed to be protecting the Moabites, delivering them, providing for them, and and, and Ehud stabs the king right in the belly. This, This grotesque thing takes place, and he just walks right by him because they can't do anything. They can do nothing. I mean, everything in this story Everything detailed in the story is just revealing the insufficiency of of idols, the worthlessness of the things of this world, and the impotency of an enemy who who tries to taunt us and can't any longer. Eglon was put down by the sword. Our enemy was put down through the words of Christ on the cross when he said, it is finished. At that moment of Jesus' death, sin, death, guilt, shame, worry, fear, anxiety, anger, their power, their control over those who are in Christ, decimated. We fear no condemnation. Why? Because Christ has conquered sin. He's paid the penalty. Romans 8.1, rest in this truth, brothers and sisters. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. None. Not a little bit. Maybe a little bit depending on the day. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ, which means we do not worry or fear or grow anxious. We are not captives to them any longer. Why? Because God holds the future in his hands, and he's a good God because Christ has triumphed over them. He's crushed the head. As the lyrics say in the the great song, Before the Throne, when Satan tempts me to despair, when he tells me of the guilt within, there it is, there's the taunting Right, the taunting of "Look what you've done, look who you look who you were, look at the things in your past, look at what you're doing even now." There's no way God would love you. God would accept you. You'll never get past this. This is who you are. It's your identity. It's who. It's what defines you. When Satan tempts you to despair, tells you of that guilt that's within you. What's the song say? Upward, I look, and I see Him there. We see Christ who made an end to all my sin. Because the sinless Savior died, my sinful soul is counted free. Why? For God the just is satisfied. To look on me? No. To look on Christ, to look on him and pardon me. That's what we rest in. The enemy has been defeated to Christ. And so walk in boldness. Go in victory. Don't listen to its tauntings any longer. Church, what are the obstacles in front of you? Brother and sister, what are 
the accusations that you still listen to? Does fear control you? Does anxiety cripple you? Does anger or lust seem to own you? Does guilt or shame, does it paralyze you? Do you feel as though those things that are taunting us and saying that are tempting you toward despair, telling you of the guilt within, does it seem as though those things are insurmountable? These mountains that I can't get past, they're too big, they're too vile, they're too disgusting. I can't get past these things. This this is probably just the rest of what my life is. What grotesque and vile monster All right, do do you still act enslaved to? Christ will say, and through Christ's life, his death, his resurrection, declares you no longer have to listen to their tauntings of the enemy any longer. He has no power, he has no control or dominion over you. When you're tempted to despair because of your guilt, because of your shame, you confess. You bring it out into the open. You expose it for what it is. You repent and you look upward to Christ, the hero of the faith, the object of our affection, the source of our joy, the payment for our sin. Because he has taken your shame upon himself. He has paid the penalty for your guilt. Through faith, you do not stand guilty before God, but you stand accepted. Is that not amazing, church? We stand before a holy God accepted. When God looks upon you, he does so with joy and with delight as a father delights in his child. Why? Not because he's looking upon me. He's looking upon the son, which is pardon me. This is the gospel. Believe the gospel. Believe the truth and the words of the gospel, not the taunting from the enemy any longer. This is what Christ has accomplished for us. He put the wise to shame. He has delivered you. He has triumphed over that which condemned us. And because of his victory, we can rest in the freedom that he has purchased for us. No longer, no longer, church, are you a slave to sin, a slave to fear, a slave to worry, a slave to guilt, a slave to shame. It's been exposed for the dung that it is. It's laying dead on a floor somewhere. Colossians 2, and you who are dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. There's the taunting. This is a standing against us. But what's Christ do? He set it aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and the authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Church, behold Christ and his victory.